welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. Today, my guest is Nina Taylor, Vice President of Learning and Education at the American Society for Radiation Oncology. I first met Nina in 2018 at an Alliance Quality and Innovation Summit in Park City, Utah. She and Andrew Chaco, who was a guest in episode two of Right Medicine, were presenters in a session on designing in innovative education programs. But my alarm bells started ringing five minutes into the session, which included storytelling, games, and gasp, group improv. Improv requires an open-hearted willingness to lean into vulnerability and submit to the process. I'm a white, middle-aged, middle-class Northern European woman, reserved, restrained, and some might say emotionally closed down. It comes with a cold climate and I don't do improv. But that really was the point of the session. Moving out of your comfort zone is vital to learning. Games and processes like improv invite us to change our vocabularies and behaviours. They free the mind to explore preconceived ideas and assumptions and foster collaboration. Nina is the consummate collaborator. In today's episode, she talks about her work in continuing education and how she uses active listening, social learning, and a sense of fun to create immersive and accessible education for clinicians in healthcare. Hello and welcome to Right Medicine. I'm here today with Nina Taylor, who is the Vice President of Learning and Education at the American Society for Radiation Oncology. And I'm super happy to have the opportunity to have this conversation with her. Welcome, Nina. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I want to ask you to share something about your background and how you find yourself into the CME CPD world. Yeah, so everybody has a a very interesting kind of superhero origin story of CME and and I'm no different. Um, So I actually started out in research. I was at at the United States Department of Agriculture and I loved my time in the lab, but it was a little boring. And so it was just me and maybe two people in the lab and my experiments. Um, And so I wanted to do something a little more dynamic, but I didn't know what it was. Um, And so my nephew actually fell pretty ill and spent a long time at Children's Hospital. And I actually got to interface pretty frequently with his team of gastroenterologists. And that's kind of where I, you know, found AGA because I wanted to help 
the team to kind of figure out what was going on with my favorite little guy, right? And so they had an opening in their education department for a coordinator, which is, you know, pretty much the the first step of really that team member in education, Mm -hmm. right? You get a little bit of everything uh, as a coordinator. And it was focused in on the annual meeting and the steering committee. And that's kind of where I stepped into this world. And it was really because of my nephew. I didn't know anything about CME. You know, there's no true kind of education around it. I went to school for for psychology and sociology and did some business, but um, there was no formal training that I had. And then once I was in AGA and kind of learning about uh, adult learning and, and putting on meetings, logistics, I just found how big and broad this industry was, um, the collaborators, the, the educators, and really the brilliant minds, both the back of the house and the front of the house, um, being able to go into an entire city and take it over. It was really attractive as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I decided to, you know, pursue my master's specifically in education and training and really focused in on adult learning theories and concepts and how to design really creative education, um, both live, but also I had a very strong focus on uh, online learning and virtual learning, which I didn't realize would be very important <laughs> later on. Huge in asset right now. <laughs> I'm glad that I paid attention in class. Um, And so, and then, you know, it's that that financial aspect as well, the corporate support and the marketing uh, and really the education department actually, I mentioned earlier in a meeting, it's one of the few departments that actually branches off into so many other departments within a society. Um, I'm in lockstep with technology. I'm in lockstep with finance and marketing and comms. And so it just was so attractive. It just kept me engaged. And and yeah, so it's been almost 14 plus years now uh, that I've just been hanging out in CME. That's great. I love that story. <laughs> I, I did notice that your uh, undergraduate major was psychology and sociology. I'm a sociology major as well. So oh, yeah. I always get very excited. <laughs> the heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you must be one of the few people, I think, in our field that actually has a master's in adult Mm -hmm. education and learning. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that are really at the heart of Mm -hmm. expertise in adult learning? Yeah, so you have a a ton of theory that goes in behind it. Um, But I think what was really attractive to me was the the strategy and the structure around education, you know, whether it's a particular modeling or really the facilitation of learning, how to essentially make messaging land and speaking directly to your audience and understanding what that audience is. I, I remember us going through several classes and just how to write learning objectives Uh, which became something that was just so important in this work, Um, really smart learning objectives and how to, to meet those learning objectives and then later evaluate them. And so, you know, outcomes, measurements, data, uh, super important when it came to really designing programs. And so, and like really all types of programs. And really, I think, Uh, what was really important for me was being as divergent as possible. So taking every lesson that I learned and taking it a step further, 
right? And making sure that education was fun. I couldn't remember how many sessions I had set in in undergrad in particular that were complete snooze fests, right? You just, (laughs) you know, it was literally death by PowerPoint. What reading are we doing? Um, But none of my master's classes were like that. Um, I went to an HBCU, uh, which is historically Black college university. And um, we were leading classes. We were leading discussions. We were essentially equating method um, and theory to movies that were out at the time, you know, and so it was just very dynamic. And I think I was able just to pull from even my experience and then apply that to how physicians learned. And then one of the pillars to the educational program that I was in um, was around facilitation. So you had to know Mm. how to consult. So we would consult with different organizations, but you also had to learn how to teach, right? And so, but teaching and leading by being in the middle. And so it turns out that that ended up being not only how I would essentially teach and facilitate um, in the future, but it ended up being my leadership style. So how I end up leading teams now, I lead from the middle because of what I had learned, you know, in that master's program. So I want to dig into that just a little more. What do you mean by leading from the middle? Yeah. So, you know, I I kind of uh, challenge folks to kind of think about like their leadership ethos. And so mine is I'm I'm firm, but fair. And uh, I think about how to um, really empower every member on my team to have complete buy-in and be leaders themselves. And so if there's a big project or a big idea, I don't sit up front and the driver's seat. I rotate the driver's seat. And so I literally become the nucleus that just powers everything that comes out of me. And so every person has a piece that they own, a major contribution to the overall project. And I'm really just turning to supporting cast for their magic. And I think that it helps people not only feel completely bought into the organization, into the idea, but it helps them identify strengths that they didn't know that they have. It helps to challenge them and what it really means to work. They're not widget makers. They're not clock punchers. You know, they're they're more than that. And then I think it helps to elevate their skill set as well. And so it's great to be the front man, but I felt that it was just more power just to kind of sit in the middle and, you know, coach and um, really empower people to step out, present, you know, take ownership of their work and not always take ownership of other people's work. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. You've worked in several medical societies. I did, yeah. So I'm curious how your experience of teaching mm-hmm. and learning to teach during your master's supports your work with faculty. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I have an amazing team at Astro. I lead both the education as well as the logistics and the e-learning units. And we have a ton of committees. We're very uh, member focused. And um, I think that we have maybe 11 different committees between steering committees, special interest groups, and, and more. And I think that really every single person on my team manages their own committee. So they can, they feel empowered to be you know, on these calls with folks that are the smartest people that you could ever run into and be able to lead and guide, you know, decision making. And so I think that 
not only with the leadership style, but also the types of projects and the fact that they feel comfortable bringing their own ideas to the table and really understanding the value of active listening and, um, you know, being a true collaborative partner. I think when I first started in CME, it was very much that the physicians led everything. Mm-hmm. So it was like, you know, essentially you do this and go. And now it's it's different, right? They want to hear from us because they know that we have the expertise, right? And so um, when it comes to adult learning and the technology, especially now, you know, right. they're looking to the staff more so than ever to make things work. And so I think that's very empowering. And I do feel that um, more folks would benefit to channel their staff in that direction. Do you think medical specialty societies are unique in that sense? One of the things that I hear sometimes, maybe a little more often from uh, providers that work in a a MEC, a medical education company setting, is it's much more challenging to engage faculty because they're not necessarily seen as as the experts. Sometimes there's there's a sense of deferral to yeah. the physician faculty that, that gets in the way of building effective, meaningful content. Is that something that, that is a little bit different depending on who the providers are? Yeah, I can definitely see that. I spent about seven years at a, at a MAC and I can definitely see the difference between the relationship that we had as a MAC and the relationships that I have in, inside of a medical specialty society. And it's really because I, I feel that it's a member organization as a medical specialty society. So they kind of see me as like one of them, right? I'm championing their causes, I'm in it, versus, you know, with the MEC, that's kind of like you're almost an outsider in a way, right? Like you're helping, you're feeding into it, but you're not quite one of us yet, right? Like, you know, I know you, but I don't know you, you know, versus I have physicians in my phones that I can text and call up whenever. And that's from most all of the associations that I've worked with. You really do become almost friends to family um, because you have these passions, which is their work, that is your work, that turned into this a lot of passion projects. And like, even though I'm in radiation oncology, I still have folks that reach out. I actually had just worked with, um, sent over notes to a psychiatrist on his new initiative because he just valued my feedback because of our previous work that that we've done together. And so it's just a kind of an ecosystem of sharing information. And I think that that's something that is very unique to medical specialty society staff, that if MECs ever figured it out, you know, <laughs> it's like good luck to us. Um, but MECs, I think, found out technology before we did, right? They figured out lean modeling, how to run fast and quick before we did. Um, They don't have the bureaucracy like we do. And so there's kind of trade-offs on both sides. But I think the close relationship, it's really what keeps me coming back. That's interesting. So it's a very collegial model. For sure. For sure. Can you talk a little bit about how your current organization, ASRO, uh, approaches clinician education? you know, for members, what kind of things are you interested in? Are you really kind of empowered to address? Yeah. So um, right now we're in this, and and I can say that (laughs) it's pretty clearly because I'm helping kind of set the stage for this, but 
really generating a lot of original content. And so working with our committees on um, really identifying the topics based on member surveys and evaluations that are most relevant and interesting to our members. Similar to a lot of folks, um, things around health equity, diversity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. So Astro did not have you know, representation on the board. I was able to kind of help move that in the right direction. And so we've got more programming coming out around HETI and really kind of uh, expanding toolkits and programming around diversity. Uh, Similarly, you know, we're taking a look at virtual learning in a new way. Our annual meeting was, of course, impacted by COVID. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had just a different story than a lot of other folks. And a lot of it really came from aggressive planning (laughs) and a very aggressive proposal. And we did a, a complete immersive virtual experience that looked similar to Uh, what people would have come to if they were able to join us in Miami. Um, So from a virtual convention center, an all virtual exhibit hall, literally all of the programming that would have happened in Miami, and then the extension of that continues to live on on virtually. And so, you know, we, of course, didn't cut any of the reg rates. We didn't devalue the education just because we couldn't host it live. You know, virtual is in CME. It's just as good. And so our story on the impacts of COVID, very different than some other folks because of those decisions. Um, And of course, AI and AR, VR, big data and informatics, all of that stuff is interesting. And so looking at really interesting ways to not only get that information out, but people to to continue to collaborate. Social learning, of course, we'll be mm-hmm. doing experiments pretty soon. And then um, really practical hands-on things like contouring and using tech tools to be able to do that is stuff that we focus on quite a bit. So you mentioned a deep immersive experience in a virtual setting. Mm-hmm. So, and we're having this conversation in February 2021. Were you already equipped as an organization with virtual technology that allowed you to kind of create that immersive experience or did you have to scramble to pull that technology together? No, we were not. (laughs) So um, I think that I saw the writings on the wall when I saw some very large shows that I'm familiar with start to crumble in days, you know, they are in showtime. You know, I knew that given our position in the calendar, which was the last week of October, um, and so it was more strategy uh, to start to advocate to the board pretty early to pull the plug on Miami that we I knew just wouldn't be ready to house us and wouldn't be safe, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. And the board made the decision to to allow me the time, which was approximately six months, to turn the entire meeting around. And my plan was pretty aggressive. Um, I didn't want to cut anything. I actually added content, and it was a complete redesign while also mitigating damages from, from Miami. So it was a huge undertaking that incorporated organizational preparedness. So it went back to those, you know, key pillars of HRD, those key pillars of the master's program to establish that organizational change. And really, it was halfway through just to to kind of keep the team rallied around the idea, stay on plan, stay on message, um, and keep going. Uh, So it was quickly identifying 
you know, the apps that worked, the platforms that worked, you know, getting the, the relationships, starting to leverage them. That's one of the reasons why I think education is so attractive because you have, you should have solid relationships with your, your technology team and mm-hmm. your comms team. So, so when you say, okay, guys, it's time for us to do something different, they're ready to line up and go. And I was fortunate enough to have that in very solid partnerships across the various divisions. And so um, when the plan was laid out, they were ready just to kind of to move. And while it was pretty terrifying to move in that way, you know, you could see pretty early on that, okay, we won the ball game. And so it it just brought, I think, a new life to Astro to win on that size of a scale, really, when, you know, other folks hadn't, you know, I mean, it's traumatic to plan a meeting over a year, sometimes a year and a half, and then have to, you know, throw your work away. We even had a little funeral for our meeting. <laughs> it was so sad to have to, you know, pitch our work. But we, we did something that was pretty amazing, and our members were so happy with it. I think that they were shocked. Our evaluations, we were actually 10% of an increase over the satisfaction of the live meeting from previous years. Wow. They were just so impressed with it. And so we learned so much about virtual learning. And, you know, we wanted to make it different because by the time we were up, we knew that Zoom fatigue would be setting in. Yeah. We we had to do something that was more immersive. And so we went um, more of a dynamic versus a static look and feel. And then, of course, that that training of that faculty, which is still ongoing, right? Because we're going to still be in similar waters. For some time, can you give an example of what, you know, a dynamic, immersive yeah. uh, activity or experience looked like? Yeah, so I modeled the program and the look of it similar to like an iPad game. So <laughs> really was click action. It looked exactly like I replicated the Miami Convention Center. I replicated our show look. So a lot of it went through design. If you went to the exhibit hall, the booths looked like the booths that they would have had in Miami. So they were able to kind of go in and, you know, talk to representatives and watch videos. And then if they were in sessions, it still had the the networking elements to it. You were still able to see faculty and we had really amazing faculty. And then we had, you know, the polling, the Q&A, we had the gamification pieces. So you really wanted to get exciting Mm -hmm. and so you had that visual aesthetic then on top of the interaction. And then that ran consecutively on top of having things at their fingertips. So they can do it whenever with literally every language conversion that you can think of. Um, wow. And gave them, I think, room to curate their own experience. Um, something that you wouldn't have done, been able to do if you were live. Mm-hmm. Um, with session, you'll miss several. And so we still had everything else that we promised. We still rolled out a brand new app. We rolled out a brand new website to go with this new look of the show. Mm-hmm. So everything just got accelerated, you know, versus having a, a very kind of static page or Zoom integration. Um, we went kind of full immersion. I'm guessing radiation oncologists are pretty tech savvy. They are pretty tech savvy. Our um, members are skew a little bit older. So some of them, um, our average age uh, overall was about 51. Okay. But the, the click action, just click and play worked. And because we had so much content, it had to be split up over several different rooms. So it just kind of became, you know, once they figured out how to navigate through 
the convention center and that, you know, they, there were little globes that they could find to rack up points. You know, once they understood it, they really enjoyed it. And so it, it just it modeled essentially an iPad game. And you mentioned you're doing some experimentation around social learning. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So for this year, we're actually um, working on heading back live. So we'll be having a show in Chicago in October, but also having a virtual element um, as far as a hybrid meeting element as well. And really, one of the things that really was an amazing thing that came from the annual meeting was just the amount of um, social media engagement that came from meeting. It actually outpaced our live by millions of tweets. Um, and we thought that it would be the opposite. Oh. People would be sessions and like they didn't have time to like tweet while they're actually on a virtual session, but it was it was totally different. <laughs> Interesting. And so we wanted to kind of bake in more time um, for people to to interact with each other and really doing it safely. One of the things that we've learned in some of our conversations with our, our committees is that um, our members miss being with each other. Um, especially after a year of virtual learning and they are like, come hell or high water, we are showing up to this meeting. And so we wanted to make sure that we had both things for CME, but also things not for CME that engaged in that social kind of aspect. And so we have the things non-CME that focus on wellness, um, but also things for CME that focus on that skills building. So whether it's leadership or financial toxicity, bringing in things like role playing and debates mm-hmm. and really having some hands-on learning through games, um, whether that's board games that are organized or kind of card games, having some sort of fun interaction or intervention inside of a session, um, and then opportunities to open it up to talk. So whether it's through pair sharing or large group discussion mm-hmm. that's facilitated, um, just having that opportunity for them to share with each other. During our one of our virtual sessions that we added, um, the session was about COVID and the impact on the healthcare team. And we had, of course, Dr. Fauci come, but also um, Dr. Patrice Harris. We had... Uh, representatives from global, but also um, state and state territories. And um, our faculty that was moderating it uh, had just moved to New York um, at the top of COVID. And so, you know, having that major change in the move, but also now being at the epicenter of the pandemic, she was, you know, having a very hard time, right? Like if she recounts our experiences, you will start to tear up. And so it's, to me, that ability to reconnect with your colleagues and your peers is something that's really important. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, for folks that are kind of going live or thinking about something hybrid, definitely consider that, you know, that opportunity to uh, figure out some sort of way for them to re-engage and kind of interact with each other Mm -hmm. and to share their experiences because it's been very, very difficult. And have you found that in creating the immersive experience that you did for the annual meeting, did you have to kind of switch up the way that you assessed or evaluated outcomes? So we didn't have to change too much. We definitely added uh, additional questions, you know, and we ended up leveraging like our listservs. We wanted to really kind of listen and hear from what other people have done in previous virtual meetings. So we added additional questions and really what we had learned from it were all the things that 
worked really well and they liked. And then, of course, the things that didn't work really well, which were really around like some of the networking things and the exhibit hall. But when it came to like the learning aspect, um, we found that virtual learning really was on par with our live learning. And we saw that there was a shift and what was important for the year. And so communicating with your patients and collaborating with teams really ended up moving around literally every other benchmark that we had. And so I think the focus we saw shifted for the year. And so that meant that for this year in particular, we were looking for different education, both for our live meetings, but to supplement the education that we had seen at the annual meeting. So the data from the annual meeting was really significant and actually really, really interesting. So we'll actually be doing a couple of different reports on it. And then the team had, the ACCME had accepted um, one of their abstracts uh, because one of our first meetings was a, a specialty refresher meeting um, was canceled and we converted it in eight days to a virtual meeting. And um, we're doing it virtual again with some of the lessons learned. Um, so we're actually doing a longitudinal study on that meeting with some of these changes in virtual learning. So we'll definitely stay tuned for that because <laughs> we'll have some, some information that we've gleaned from virtual learning. But I think the concept of it, I think it just fortifies that folks are still learning in this way, if not more. And they're comfortable learning in this way. And it's really about that additional access um, because there are folks that could not come to an annual meeting or to any of the live meetings based on finances or where they are. They're in a resource limited setting. And, and this just opens the door. And really the argument for me was that every meeting should have some sort of virtual component, to be quite honest. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I I think a lot of people would agree that it's been increasingly hard for many, many clinicians to, you know, show up live for meetings, although that live connection is clearly a really important aspect of having that sense of collective membership of a profession and a professional organization. But virtual's virtual's here to stay for all sorts of reasons. And we're going to need solid data about what works and, and what doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that when it works to scream out loud, because for so long, I felt like um, we were told that, you know, e-learning, you know, was kind of subpar to live learning. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a huge place for both. I I don't think that there's one that's greater than the other or a virtual learning is only here as a, you know, silver lining to COVID. I think that, you know, the silver lining to COVID is the innovation, like the, you know, the launching pad of a lot of, you know, us thinking in a different way. But I do think that education in any form is a positive. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. You've given so many great examples of what works and what is effective. What are you not seeing in the CME CPD field that practitioners really need to be thinking about in order to expand and improve their education game? Yeah, so um, one of the things that I talk about quite a bit um, with, uh, I think folks that kind of came up with me is I don't see a lot of, I think, youthful leadership it's usually me. (laughs) 
Um, and I'm usually represent. I'm usually representing quite a few check boxes, right? And so, um, young African American woman, right? And so you don't see that. I if I look at the alliance or I look at you know ACCME, you know you're, you're just seeing kind of the same players, um, and they're older, and you know they're they're mostly Caucasian. And so in talking about some of my experiences, those diverse voices aren't always listened to or ideas are taken into consideration for programming or uh, for proposals um, or even given the chances. And they should, right? I think in one of my um, presentations, I always use like the example of Pixar and how the Pixar movies are so great um, because, you know, they film the movie and put it out on the screening room and literally everybody, they're able to, to provide notes, whether you are in marketing or you're the janitor or a parking attendant, everybody gives notes. And I think that makes stronger programming. I think that makes stronger organizations. And I think that that really leads to that next generation of leaders. Um, so I would like to see in CME more, I think, diversity, but also opportunities given to all types of people and, and really all of those ideas to kind of be, um, be even considered. And then I also think that, you know, bringing to the forefront that iteration, right? Just because something doesn't work the first time or it doesn't yield the type of financial return that you want to on that first go around doesn't mean that you get to pitch it in the trash. You should take it back to the drawing board and figure out why. Could you partner? Could you go after additional streams of revenue? Are there other um, opportunities that exist to make it a success? And sometimes it takes more than one iteration for something to catch fire. If I gave up on a particular project uh, the, the first time, you know, things like the psychiatry innovation lab wouldn't exist. Um, the mental health innovation zone, which I think is now in its fifth iteration, wouldn't exist. And so you can't just give up on those things. And, you know, I would challenge folks to to kind of, you know, continue to to try. Last year was tough. Um, it was very tough on so many people. And, you know, it's been really endearing is that uh, folks have started to open up those communication channels in between medical specialty societies. But also, I think it needs to be even more broadened. Um, I think mechs need to talk to us. I think that hospital systems need to talk to, you know, I think there needs to just be more cross collaboration in general. I think everybody's suffering in some way. Mm-hmm. But if you, you know, if you won the day or if you really are hurting and you need to figure something out, there's somebody that knows. And so I, I do think that that opportunity for more collaboration should exist inside of inside of our halls, you know, and I'd like to see a little more fun. I think that we don't all like, and I think everybody says this at some point, we don't necessarily practice what we preach. We have some of the <laughs> driest education sometimes. Yeah. And I think it's starting to get jazzed up mm-hmm. quite a bit. Uh, but if I sit through like literally one more ridiculous outcomes, <laughs> it's, like, it's like you need that education, but can it be like more exciting? And like, as I, I put together education for the full physician, um, where you have the practical application, but there's also skills-based items that you need. It's the same thing for CPD professionals. There's still skills-based elements that we need, whether it's communication or presentation or leadership. So I, I do think that we need to focus in a little more on that. 
And that's the end of my soapbox. <laughs> that's a great soapbox. What do you think stops that cross collaboration? Because it seems like that's something we've talked about in the industry or the field for, you know, quite some time. Yeah, I think that it's naturally set up in fractions, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a listserv just for medical specialty societies, right? There's a listserv just for mechs. And granted, everybody's thing is different, but there hasn't been that one meeting or that one initiative that people can kind of crawl to or they don't feel safe to go to, right? If if I go to those things, I end up with a bunch of business cards about partnering. Well, sometimes I don't want to partner. Sometimes I just want to brainstorm with you, you know, and I should just be able to just sit down at the table and Mm -hmm. brainstorm, you know? And so not everything has to be transactional. Um, And I think that that's kind of where we've forgotten about the pillars of relationship building and friendships because it could be transactional much later. So yeah, I think we're just naturally caught up into fractions, but we can definitely work on that as a a large, big family. I think you've really nailed something there in terms of the transactional nature of of a lot of relationships. I know we're running out of time. I did want to ask you about the, the Psychiatric Innovation Lab. What is that and how does it work? Yeah, so it's a it's kind of like a shark tank where we have these amazing, brilliant individuals with really great ideas on how to improve patient care and mental health. And um, they come and they pitch their ideas to panelists uh, for prize money or in-kind services. Um, and it's usually done at the APA annual meeting. And we bring together business leaders and um, CMOs and investors to give them feedback on their idea. Um, it turns into a little bit of a hackathon um, where their idea, they're able to work on it with folks that are invited in and improve their idea and repitch for, you know, cash prizes and in-kind services. So it's a really awesome initiative. Dr. Nina Vassan has been literally at the ground level of it as well. And um, it kind of just lives on, <laughs> which is so awesome to see the products and apps and services that have come out of this really incubator, to be quite mm-hmm. honest. And so it's got a little cult following and it's just, a, it's got really amazing energy, but it's like, it's like the TV show Shark Tank. And did you start that? Yeah, it was like the very first oh, wow. initiative and generated money. And, and then from there, I kind of built the mental health innovation zone and that lives on, right? I love that. And so it like, even I, I leave it, it still goes, <laughs> it goes strong. So, and now at Astro, it's still kind of kicking butt. So yeah, it's been pretty amazing. It's like, CME is awesome. <laughs> And anything that we haven't kind of covered that you feel is really important to the CME CPD field, you know, what would you like to see happen in 2021 and beyond? Yeah, I think that, um, I think for 2021, coming out of 2020, um, extending yourself some grace, you know, I think uh, last year was very, really difficult. A lot of teams were really ran thin. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the kind of unspoken thing happened, quite a few like layoffs and things like that. It's just been really tough. And I think realizing that we always recover, this is, we've had bumpy times before. So I, I do think that if I had like a final word, you know, we're, we're tougher than this moment. And I, I do think that 
Um, we're continuing to beat back COVID and we're going to get back to um, having our huge, amazing shows and taking over our cities and being able to educate our physicians live, virtually, whatever you decide. But it's tough. And I think as leaders, um, especially of teams, you know, to continue to listen and support you, not only your teams, but your peers who might be struggling as well. So it's just been a wild and crazy ride, <laughs> but it, it's one I think worth hanging on to. Nina Taylor, leading from the middle, taking over the world. Thank you so much for talking to me on Right Medicine. You're so welcome and congratulations on the show. And thank you for having me been such a pleasure. Nina's experience at an HBCU gave her direct exposure to a dynamic learning environment filled with opportunities to teach and facilitate that she's been able to pull into her professional life and use to support her work with faculty. And her leadership style of leading from the middle is invested in uplifting team members, elevating their skills and fostering an ecosystem of sharing information, as well as a climate in which team members take ownership of their own work and not the work that someone else has determined for them. The parallel here for me is, of course, adult learning. How many programs in CME or CPD, continuing education in the health professions, really allow learners to take ownership of their own learning? And to what extent does the shift to a virtual learning environment open a door to that kind of experience? Nina's clear that it is possible to craft dynamic, immersive experiences that offer room for learners to curate their own learning in a virtual environment that has a clear aesthetic design, rapid interactive activities and networking opportunities. She's also clear that in order for the continuing education field to evolve and strengthen its programming, there really needs to be more diversity among team members. Opportunities for those team members in an education organization to bring their ideas to the table and a mechanism for listening to and considering those ideas. She also talked about strategies for addressing failure, which we explored in episode one with Audrey Torno of Excalibur Medical Education. So much good stuff. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, consider subscribing or leaving a review. Until next time, I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine. <laughs>